so Jane, you know, we're talking about this stuff, but you know, we want to kind of show the proof that we have. We're not just coming up with this because this is a, a lot of, uh, you know, crazy uh, things that we're talking about. We kind of want to show the evidence, evidence why we are coming up to these conclusions that we are. And one of the best books on this subject, because it's written by the brother of Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana was involved with everything. He was the head of the mafia in Chicago and one of the head of the, one of the uh, five families, probably the second most powerful guy in the world as far as the mafia was concerned. The number one guys were in New York, but Sam Giancana, he was telling his brother Chuck everything that was going on, and he uh, talks about in his book, Double Cross, the Explosive Inside Story, he talks about uh, Marilyn Monroe, you know, like we were saying, he says, Marilyn Monroe had long been connected to the outfit. Her first real break had come from a man, Mooney, and his lieutenant, Johnny Rosselli, knew well. Joe Schenck, the Hollywood producer convicted and imprisoned back in the 40s during the Brown Bioff scandal, which was a uh, scandal that implicated a lot of uh, mafia types. An aging 70-year-old man, by the time Mooney said he bedded Marilyn Monroe, Schenck nevertheless was still powerful in Hollywood, always on the lookout for potential stars through his relationships with producers such as Schenck, Rosselli had been impressed by Monroe and told Mooney so. From behind the scenes, Chicago quietly promoted her career and Schenck introduced the buxom beauty to another man Mooney said he often conducted business with, producer Henry Cohn. According to Mooney, both Schenck and Cohn enjoyed Marilyn's sexual favors in exchange for two-bit parts in films. But by 1953, her two-bit days were over. After achieving household name recognition with her sensationalized nude calendar in the number one Playboy and the movie All About Eve, Marilyn, Marilyn catapulted to true stardom with the hit movie Niagara. Although Mooney said she'd been a good investment, he also admitted she was a sadly driven woman. More comfortable with her clothes off than on, Marilyn readily traded her body and soul for what she imagined was success and fame. You know, this is Chuck's rendition of what Sam Giancana told him. His, his, and, you know, Sam Giancana, he was a very conniving person. He, uh, one of his strengths was psychologically breaking down his enemies and knowing what they were thinking and what they were doing and the type of person that they were. So here Chuck is talking about, you know, what Sam Giancana was saying about Marilyn Monroe. Hers was a fantasy filled with conquered men and white knights and neither would be the case for instead she became the conquered, discovering to her endless sorrow that the men she envisioned as her saviors became at last her persecutors. Deceived countless times by countless men, Marilyn Monroe was the quintessential victim. And from Chuck's standpoint, he's right. They did become her persecutors. You know, they she got sucked into this tempest, uh, this 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 whirlwind of everything going on, and the 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 poor girl uh, became the victim, just like he says here. From what Chuck could learn from his brother in the late 50s and early 60s, Marilyn's desire to achieve stardom, coupled with her childlike desire to please, was exploited by the outfit and the CIA as well. Her sexual charms were employed by the CIA to frame world leaders. 
among them President Sukarno of Indonesia. Mooney insisted that using Monroe as bait, the CIA had successfully compromised leaders from Asia to the Middle East, and maybe even the President of the United States. She, you know, this she was couriering messages back and forth from the CIA and the mafia, and uh, you know. They, they already knew what type of man Kennedy was. He was a partier, and, um, you know, it, it's no stretch of the imagination that they were now using her to attempt to compromise him as well. I mean, think about that. He says that, and Marilyn, perhaps more because she enjoyed the attentions of the world's most powerful man, than for reasons of patriotism, had been a willing participant in the intrigue. He continues on to say that throughout 1962, part-time outfit CIA operative uh, Bernie Spindle's wiretaps had recorded the lovemaking of Jack Kennedy. So here we go. The, uh, the mafia has got some dirt on the Kennedys. According to Mooney, he had all of Kennedy's playthings, among them Judy Campbell and socialite Mary Meyer, as well as actresses Angie Dickinson and Marilyn Monroe, under surveillance. Sometime that spring, Mooney said he'd learned from Guy Bannister, another player in the JFK assassination. Guy Bannister was in charge of the FBI here in New Orleans. Um, he'd learned from Guy Bannister that J. Edgar Hoover had confronted the president with FBI reports of the affair with Campbell and that, thanks to that, Judy's effectiveness had waned. However, he also knew that Maryland and the president had been connected romantically since the Dem Democratic National Convention and that in March of 1962, Bobby K uh, Kennedy had now become involved with her as well. Marilyn, the orphan child of a dozen foster homes, now passed from one Kennedy to, Kennedy to the other, and she told friends over her tap phone she believed she was falling in love with the Attorney General. These wiretaps, it's well known that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had everybody wiretaps, you know, Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe. Um, there was even a famous story years ago you know, people who had bought Marilyn Monroe's Brentwood residence, when they did, went to do some renovations, they uh, went in the walls there and they found like miles of wires in there. You know, we're talking 50s, 60s technology. They didn't have, you know, radio devices then. So they were wiring up her, you know, residence and her telephones for sound. So there you go. That's uh, Chuck Giancana's behind the scenes evaluation of Marilyn Monroe and her uses for the CIA and the mafia. He also goes on in his book to talk about how Joe Kennedy was definitely in the pocket of Sam Giancana. Joe Kennedy was a bootlegger during the prohibition days and had mob connections. And then later on, as his son was rising up the ranks in the military and then in politics, becoming a senator, he um, went to Sam Giancana, Joe Kennedy went to Sam Giancana to ask him for some favors to help him uh, keep rising, to keep on going to the White House. So in order to get JFK into the White House, there was a couple things that needed to be done. Early in his career, John F. Kennedy had got in, into trouble with a uh, marriage. I think while he was in the military, he uh, married some some chick that had Russian was a Russian spy, basically. So uh, Sam Giancana helped Joe Kennedy with that, and then later on, when JFK was rising up in politics, Frank Costello asked Joe Kennedy for a favor, and Joe Kennedy refused him. 
and the mafia had been doing favors for Jen, Joe Kennedy for a long time. So this angered them. Frank Costello put a contract out on Joe Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy went to Sam Giancana to ask that contract to be off and explained to Sam Giancana that the reason why he couldn't do the favor for Frank was because if he was still associated with the mafia, it could affect his son's uh, ability to, be, to get into the White House eventually. So Sam Giancana... Uh, got that contract taken off of Joe Kennedy. And in response to that, Joe Kennedy said, okay, one, if, once he gets into the White House, whatever you guys want, we will do. You have saved his father's life, so he will do whatever you, know, you guys tell him to do. So they uh, helped him get rid of the, the annulment, the marriage, and... Then they helped them him in Chicago get all the votes that he needed to beat Nixon when he went up against him for the presidential electum election. So, you know that's that's where the double cross comes in. The title of Sam, uh, Chuck Giancana's book he talks about how a struck a deal was struck, and once Kennedy was in the White House, he at first looked like he was doing his part that he agreed to, but then. He was giving them information through Judy Campbell and Marilyn Monroe about what the FBI was doing, but he was only cherry-picking the information and just giving them a little bit of what they wanted to know. And then that's when he had his brother, the Attorney General, start moving on the, on the mafia. I mean, think about that. Think about what John F. Kennedy was doing. He was taking on the mob and who were, in turn, working with the CIA. And we, we know that John F. Kennedy had, himself had said that he was going to destroy the CIA and smash it into a thousand pieces. So that's when they made their move. They started to move against the mafia. They, they grabbed up Carlos Marcella, threw him on a plane, and dumped him off in the jungle of Guatemala. They were moving against them in other ways. So now the mafia and the CIA, the CIA is trying to get them to uh, JFK to, to do what they want to do as far as Cuba. Cuba had fallen and the CIA and the mafia ha was losing lots of money from their casinos there. The CIA attempted to get him involved with an invasion of Cuba and he did not do that. So now he's got the CIA and the mafia up against him. He thinks that uh, since he's the president of the United States that he can you know, move against these guys, but but sadly he finds out how powerful they were. I mean, just imagine how... Just imagine how our... The, the future would have been changed if we would, you know, if JFK would have continued on with this. JFK did some other things too. He started the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it wasn't just the CIA that was giving uh, the military information. And um, from that, it looks like there was interagency warfare going on between the military and the CIA and the DIA uh, ever since 1960. So, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, world changing, history changing events going on here. And Chuck Giancana has got a back seat to uh, to see all of this. So 
He's talking about what's going on. He's given details as to what's going on behind the scenes. And we're seeing that this isn't just crazy conspiracy theory. We're seeing all the evidence now that uh, is showing that he is correct with this. He goes on to say, uh, uh, he talks about how Mooney wants, wanted to blackmail JFK with Marilyn Monroe and these other dalliances that he had. And he talks about in the book, for months since the primaries using technical assistance that could be traced back at least partially to the CIA, Mooney had gathered damning evidence of the Kennedy's sexual exploits. And the weeks following his uh, poolside uh, proclamation of war to Chuck against uh, JFK, he made it fully clear that he intended to use this evidence that he would expose the Kennedys. But um, Chuck goes on to say that that was not going to be the case. There was a lingering problem with the blackmail. Um, Mooney liked to use this against people. The fact that in exposing the sins of the Kennedys, the exact nature of the relationship between the CIA and the mafia might be exposed is the reason why they uh, moved away from doing that. And when you look at a lot of the information, a lot of the pictures, it's obvious that it's very close, that it's somebody... Um, it's the, it's, it's somebody like the CIA, you know, there, I, I was watching a documentary where this mafia type was talking about how they had pictures of JFK. I mean, excuse me, uh, J Edgar Hoover with, uh, some of his, uh, things that he was doing in his spare time, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and watch the movie, uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, so the, so the mafia was getting, top-notch intel on world leaders from the CIA. They couldn't use this blackmail against JFK because it would uh, show that it was just too good and that it was obviously the CIA. So when the, the JFK was giving them problem, what they decided to do was, um, in the book, Chuck Jean kind of talks about how the CIA told uh, Sam Giancana, that Marilyn Monroe was starting to become a problem and that they wanted him to deal with her. And so then he came up with a plan to deal with her, but then also to implicate the Kennedys at the same time while they did it. She, They knew that she had broken it off with JFK and now RFK was coming around. So they sat around and patiently waited for RFK to come back within her her general vicinity, and they had a team of guys ready to go when that happened. And he talks about it in the book. Um, here he talks about, according to guys in the outfit Chuck had talked to, it was at this time that the CIA, fearful of exposure by the vengeful, drug-addicted Monroe, requested that Mooney have her eliminated. And Mooney, smelling blood, seized on the CIA contract as a way to achieve another objective as well. By murdering Monroe, it might be possible to depose the rulers of Camelot. So here we go. That's when the, the, the moves start to be made. And then Chuck Giancana goes on and talks about how this was done. He talks about how they moved a, a couple of hitmen into the L.A. area and they were listening to the wiretaps. And when... RFK was in the area for some type of lawyer meeting or whatever was going on. She started acting up and he went over there to uh, talk her down. And um, 
once he came in to talk to her, she went off, she flipped out on him. And uh, according to Sam Giancana and these other books, he came in, talked to her. She went crazy. He asked her to calm down. They finally calmed her down. He brought a doctor with her and with him and they sedated her and then they left. And then according to Chuck Giancana, that's when they had the people move in and the way that they murdered her was they broke into the house and she was already sedated and they slipped her a, a, a suppository. And, you know, like I said before, when I first heard that, I thought that was ridiculous. But then when you look at the coroner reports, uh, it totally confirms that uh, that's what happened. You know, uh, in, the, in the book, Murder, Lies, and Cover-Ups, uh, that author talks about why you know what so when you look at the, the the scene where Marilyn was the police show up and they see that the, the the there's laundry being done the whole place has been cleaned the whole place looks staged nothing's going on the uh, police investigators had already questioned why there was no water glass nearby if Marilyn had uh, committed suicide by taking so many pills and now Dr. Noguchi, the guy who did the uh, autopsy, was also wondering why. Dr. Noguchi was wondering why her stomach was empty if she had ingested so many capsules. You know, they, they were saying 30 or 40. And if she'd taken an overdose of Nembutal barbiturates, as the toxicology tests pointed to, there should have been a telltale yellow dye on the linings of her throat, esophagus, and stomach. There was no stain. Experts claimed the only likely answer was that Marilyn ha uh, had taken or been forcibly given the lethally large dose via an enema. And that's what Chuck Giancana said in his book. He said that they moved in. She was already sedated. They taped her mouth. They, they slipped a suppository inside of her. And the barbiturates immediately went into her bloodstream and she went to sleep forever, sadly. So... Yeah, so the, you know, the coroner reports, um, here again, Thomas Noguchi said that um, the medical examiner who carried out the autopsy on Marilyn's body, Thomas Noguchi, offered at the time a cause of death as probable suicide. But as the years passed, even he admitted to doubt. He wrote in his original report, quote, the unembalmed body is that of a 36-year-old, well-developed, well-nourished Caucasian female weighing 117 pounds, and measuring 65 and one half inches in length. The scalp is covered with bleach blonde hair, the eyes are blue. A slight echematic area bleeding under the skin is noted on the left hip and left side of the lower back. Later on, he said that the same bruise might have indicated violence. So she's got marks on her back where, you know, Chuck Jean kind of said that they came in with rubber gloves she was sedated. They held her down to, they didn't hold her by the throat or anything like that. And then they slipped her the, the depository. Uh, he goes on to say that, nevertheless, that fresh bruise on her hip still remains unexplained. And as a possible clue to violence, it is curious that most of the investigative reporters who later became interested in the case failed to pick it up. 
The reason the bruise didn't seem consistent with an overdose death was that investigators didn't initially consider the possibility that the drugs were pumped into the bloodstream via an enema. If that was indeed the case, and Chuck Giancana says that it was, and most experts agree now that that is the most like, likely scenario, the mystery bruise would be consistent with Marilyn being forcefully held while the administration administration was made without her consent. It's no surprise, considering all we know about this investigation, that Marilyn's stomach and its contents and her intestine were never tested. And when Dr. Noguchi tried to correct the error, he was told that her organs had disappeared. So there you go. Uh, what, what, and what we find out later, and, and Chuck uh, Giancana has uh, said that, they moved in with their plan, and, and they thought that they were going to be successful, but the FBI came in and took all of the phone records, cleaned the place, got Robert Kennedy out of there, and then now, by doing that, J. Edgar Hoover was able to keep his job. They were trying to get rid of him as well. This was uh, 1962. He continued to be the FBI director until 1974. So from like 1934 to 74, he was the head of the FBI, a very powerful man. And uh, th that that's what Chuck Giancana in his book says. He says that um, the FBI came in and stopped the, F the Kennedys from being destroyed. But by doing that, J. Edgar Hoover put himself in a much stronger position and kept him in the uh, FBI. Now, the reason why he was so desperate to stay in the FBI is that he may have been compromised as well. There's other books that talk about how he was paid off by the uh, mafia, but the way that they paid him off was they would give him tips on horses that were uh, slated to win, and that's what he would do. He wouldn't even make the bets. He would have one of his aides go make the bet and then he would uh, clean up that way. So J. Edgar Hoover was also desperate to keep his position because if he got deposed, then that's when the Kennedys could move in and show that he also was compromised. So um, Chuck, Chuck Giancana goes on to talk about the actual uh, hitmen. Um uh, Chuck says that that's what Mooney had been waiting for. Sam Giancana immediately flew to Palm Springs, California to attend a party. But uh, Chuck just imagined that Mooney wanted to be nearby when it happened. He also says that three other planes landed in California that week in San Francisco carrying four other men, and he names them. Uh, Mooney had selected a trusted assassin, Needles Gianola, to coordinate the job. Needles, in turn, brought his sidekick, Muggsy Tortorella, on board and two other professional killers. He doesn't mention their names, one from Kansas City and one from Detroit. The four men had gone to California under Mooney's orders to murder Marilyn Monroe. So there we go. Uh, you know, so we, you know, when, when we talk about this, there's a lot of evidence, you know, I wanted to bring this up so it wouldn't just look like we're just talking about crazy conspiracy theories. There's a lot of evidence and it makes you wonder it makes you wonder why is the 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 media still not grasping upon this? He goes he goes to say the killers waited for the cover of darkness and sometime after midnight entered Marilyn's home. She struggled at first, it was said, but already drugged by the injected sedative, thanks to Bobby's doctor friend. Their rubber gloved hands easily forced her nude body to the bed, 
Calmly and with all the efficiency of a team of surgeons, they taped her mouth shut and proceeded to insert a specially doctored Nebutal suppository into her. Then they waited. So he goes on to say the suppository, which uh, they had said had been prepared by the same Chicago chemist who concocted the numerous chemical potions for the Castro hit, had been a brilliant choice. And here he goes and talks about how they use these because anything in the stomach might get regurgitated out. A lethal dosage of sedatives administered orally and by force would have been too risky, causing suspicious bruising during a likely struggle as well as vomiting. A side effect that typically resulted from ingesting the huge quantities necessary to guarantee death. Using a suppository would eliminate any hope of reviving Marilyn should she be found since the medication was quickly absorbed through the membrane directly into the bloodstream. So there you go. Instead, within moments of insertion, the suppository's massive combination of barbiturates and chlorohydrate quickly entered her bloodstream, rendering her totally unconscious. The men carefully removed the tape, wiped her mouth clean, and placed her across the bed. Their job completed. They left as quietly as they had come. Now, I am simply reading what these other persons have written, persons in position. So... You know, I was not there, obviously. I'm just bringing this to your attention as to why we believe that she did not commit suicide. And we're not the only ones saying this. There's um, coroners, chief of police's, you know, uh, saying this as well. So, yeah, poor Marilyn. Um, there was a lot going on with her. Uh, in the book, uh, you know, the last thing we'll talk about, Murder, Lies, and Cover-Ups, he talks about the FBI files. Um, he says that the FBI files say that Marilyn was involved in orgies. She had a sex tape and had a lesbian affair with Joan Crawford. Um, and she and she talks about that in some of her tapes that she made for a doctor. Um, the actress had no clue. The agency's famously Machiavellian director, J. Edgar Hoover, was compiling a bulky fire, uh, file on her that was started in 1955 and was not closed until uh, some years after her death. Um, yeah, so, they, you know, they go on to talk about other FBI files. Her, they, they were watching her when she was talking to a lot of communist sympathizers. Uh, the note claimed RFK and Marilyn attended a sex party at which a tapes recording was secretly made and was in the possession of a Los Angeles private detective agency, you know, and there was a lot of this going on too. When we look in later on, when we look into the Manson uh, family and Sharon Tate, there was some of that going on with Sharon Tate, sadly. Uh, the, the parallels between Sharon Tate and Marilyn Monroe are very interesting. And we'll talk about that later. So there we go. The uh, FBI files. There's also uh, a note in some of these files that there was a tape going around of Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe uh, performing a perverted act on somebody on film and that Joe DiMaggio had showed up. It was in New York and he had tried to buy this film for $25,000 and was told no. So she was, uh, Marilyn Monroe was, you know, we, you know, we talked about her uh, upbringing and everything, and uh, she was basically being used, a, a lot of dark stuff going on in Hollywood. So that's, that's the evidence that we have to back up our claims.